All right, there we go. For some reason, it, it died on us. So anyway, uh, with that introduction, uh, nobody heard <laughs> that uh, uh, we, we are on the air now. Thank you. Thanks for telling me, uh, Bavaria man. And uh, so we're just going to get into Genesis 2 today. However, we're going to briefly uh, talk about Frank Nelty's uh, uh, essay on Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. And uh, Dan from Georgia is standing by to uh, read us through that. And we talked a little bit about this on uh, previous episodes, but uh, Frank Nelty does a word study on the words tohu and bohu, which uh, is very uh, necessary to understand the meaning of those words. Okay, Dan, go ahead, take it away. Okay. The theological word book of the Old Testament says the following for tohu. Since the word has no certain cognates in other languages, its meaning must be determined solely from its Old Testament context. In most, if not all, of these cases, tohu has a negative or pejorative sense. This is an admission that the exact exact meaning of tohu has been lost, and that the only way the correct meaning can possibly be established is by looking at the context of every place where this word is used in the Old Testament. In plain language, there isn't a single scholar of Hebrew anywhere in the world who can establish the correct meaning of tohu in any way except by looking at how this word is used in other contexts. But that is something we ourselves can also do. In his commentary on this verse, Adam Clark wrote, The original terms tohu and bohu, which we translate without form and void, are of uncertain etymology. But in this place and wherever else they are used, they convey the idea of confusion and disorder. Adam Clark agrees with the statement in TWOT. The the word word tohu is used 20 times in the Old Testament in 19 different verses. In the following scriptures, this translation of tohu is given in capital letters for easier recognition. Another example is Deuteronomy 32 Verse 10, he found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about and he instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21, and turn ye not aside, for then should ye go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. Tohu is used twice in this verse. Okay, so vain, waste, nothingness right so right uh, yeah or as it says without form so now this would correspond to the fable of evolution that uh, whether they believe in the big bang theory or in steady state theory where you know a formless void uh universe you know of uh, of who knows what (laughs) uh, suddenly began to take form you know so maybe uh, under the fable of evolution, the universe began formless and void. But uh, that can't possibly be the way Yahweh would want to create it because he would want things to grow and develop and uh, ultimately, you know, the the race of, uh, the, the Adamic race, the crown of creation would have to come into being. And uh, why should he wait billions of years when he can just create it himself? And, and, and said it was good. When he was done forming it, it was good and very good. So there's something wrong with this uh, idea 
that Yahweh created the universe uh, void and formless. Uh, that just can't be. Okay. Well, common sense kind of tells you that. I mean, right. why would he? Why would the the master of the universe, who can create anything, create it? You know, in void. Yeah. It, this yeah. doesn't make any sense. And then have to wait all those billions of years for wait billions to, of years <laughs> for all those things to take shape. You know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, all right, then let's go down to the word bohu. Okay. The word bohu is used only three times in the Bible. Some people claim that it is derived from an unused root that means void, waste, emptiness, which may well be correct, although Adam Clark states that its etymology is uncertain. One helpful clue is that in all three occurrences, it is used together with tohu. The three scriptures, all quoted above, are Genesis 1, verse 2, Isaiah 34, verse 11, and Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. The theological word book of the Old Testament says the following, always occurring with tohu, waste, bohu describes the primordial condition of the earth, void at the beginning of creation, as in Genesis 1-2, or made empty by God's judgment, Isaiah chapter 34, verse 11, and Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. Uh-huh. So here's really good evidence that before uh, Genesis 2, or Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that we're talking about a recreation after the gap, <laughs> right? So here's mm -hmm. uh, uh, internal evidence from Scripture that the gap theory is correct, and that the planet Earth did have a previous civilization as more and more researchers are now coming to admit whether you want to call it Atlantis or uh, what's the Pacific Ocean version of Atlantis I forget what it is that uh, there was an advanced civilization on this planet they're finding evidence of it everywhere and it was utterly destroyed and so that uh, Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2, talking about a recreation, a new beginning, not the original creation. Okay? So a lot of people will have difficulty wrapping their minds around this, but that's where all of the physical evidence points to. And now with this internal evidence from the scriptures, it's pretty mm -hmm. evident that, and why would God create you know, a, a universe form and voidless when he you know, obviously had to create DNA, to get all of these beings in uh, in uh, their in their habitat, he had to create the habitat first, and then he had to create the DNA so that these creatures would uh, uh, what do you call it uh, reproduce kind after kind, bearing their own seed within themselves. So w what we see is a very orderly, a very orderly creation in Genesis chapter one. Uh, so the the idea that uh, this is the only a time that Yahweh created uh, anything is, uh, you know, uh, is an assumption most people have made, and I think it's false. Uh, over to you. Okay. You want me to continue with? Uh, yeah. yeah, please. Where we left off? Okay. Yeah. By primordial, they mean existing from the beginning. This primordial statement by the Old Testament is clearly a biased interpretation rather than an objective factual statement. They have interpreted Genesis 1-2 to be a description of the primordial condition of the earth. This in spite of openly stating that in both other instances, 
where these two words are used together, as in Isaiah 34, 11 and Jeremiah 4, 23, this refers to having been made empty by God's judgment. Really? <laughs> okay. Very good. Okay. So he was very angry when he made this decision, this, this judgment to destroy the first yes. earth age. Yes, okay. So, so note carefully, the Old Testament recognizes that in two places the expression tohu and bohu refers to the condition of having been made empty by God's judgment. These two places are very clear and unambiguous. Yet the Old Testament still claims that in the only other place where this expression is used, Genesis 1-2, it supposedly refers to the primordial condition. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Their opinion regarding Genesis 1-2 is an obvious bias, and it is unjustified. The truth is that in Genesis 1-2, the expression tohu and bohu refers to exactly the same type of thing that it refers to in the only other two places where this expression is used. It refers to a penalty for transgressions. It refers to consequences of sins. It is only in magnitude and not in type that Genesis 1-2 differs from the other two references. Now let's examine some translations of Genesis 1-2. Most translations are agreed in translating the Hebrew bohu as void or as empty space. Where they differ is in the translation of tohu. Those that render this word as without form or formless were influenced by the general view of cosmology that was accepted at that time. And those translations that render this as waste or desolate were trying to convey the meaning of the Hebrew word tohu. Okay. So the question <laughs> is, did Yahweh create the, uh, uh, this earth and this second or third or fourth recreation void and, uh, as waste? No, he wouldn't do that. He would create it in an orderly fashion. But because uh, he had given free will to some fallen angels, <laughs> and there was war in heaven, that uh, this is quite likely what happened. And so the, the, the Genesis account, the Bible, is talking about the last, the, the very last creation of you know, the universe and this uh, era that we're living in. Uh, this going to be, there won't be any more, uh, how, how should I put it, any more rebellion against Yahweh's laws, because uh, it's going to be cleared up one last time at the Judgment Day. Back to you. The Wycliffe translation and the Vulgate translation. <clears throat> Here is the, 19, the 1395 John Wycliffe translation made from the Latin Vulgate text. For so if the earth was ideal and void, and darkness were upon the face of the depth, and the Spirit of the Lord was born on the waters. This is Genesis 1-2, the original, well, you can't see the spelling, you can't, but it's all spelled different in this article. In this text, forsoth means in truth. Idel means to become useless, waste, idle. Void means void and empty space. Boron means to be or to bear, be born. And watrous means waters. In modern English, this Wycliffe translation would read, in truth, the earth had become useless or waste and an empty space and darkness was upon the face of the deep. This translation was not influenced by the then current view of cosmology. Rather, it was an attempt to accurately translate this verse into English. 
Since this was based on the Latin Vulgate text, let's now see how the 425, the 425 Vulgate rendered this verse into Latin. Terra altum eret Aeneas et vacua et tenebrae super facium abyssi et spiritus de febrete super aquas. Genesis Easy for you 1-2. to say. <laughs> How do you like that? Yeah, good. Well done. Mm-hmm. Forsooth. That's where the word forsooth comes from. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All Translating right. this Latin text word for word, we get. The earth, however, was or had become empty or empty space and empty and darkness or darkness says upon or above the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was born or carried upon or above the waters. <clears throat> the Latin words ananus and vacua both mean empty, whereas ananus means empty in the sense of nothing in it. Vacua means empty in the sense of unoccupied. So a translation of this Latin text, which was used by Wycliffe, would read, However, the earth was or had become empty, and empty and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was born above the waters. Yes, and we talked about the uh, had become translation as being the better one. So, uh, So it's interesting that these terms come into the English first from the Hebrew, then... uh, I don't know whether the Vulgate was translated directly from the Hebrew into the Latin or whether he used the Greek Septuagint. I don't know if he, uh, what the uh, original source was. So it's, and then we got, it's possible we've got four different languages, <laughs> you know, that uh, finally result in English here. So you can see that these words, the meanings of them can be changed dramatically. Back to you. The Latin text had translated the Hebrew word tohu with ananus and the Hebrew word bohu with vaqua. Now the Latin words ananus and vaqua are basically synonyms, <clears throat> both meaning empty. Mm-hmm. Now it's interesting, ananus, uh, one of the goddesses of the pagan world is inanna. Does that mean empty? <laughs> the goddess inanna? It could be. That uh, that when the when the Eli, are you still there? Uh, okay, uh, hold on. There's something. There's something. There's something going on with my sound. Uh, I hear you now. You do? Okay. Yeah, I'm really having sound issues. I think my headset is going bad. But uh, let's continue. We'll try. I may have to switch headsets okay. in the middle of the show. <laughs> okay. All right. Please continue. Uh, however, while the Hebrew words tohu and bohu clearly rhyme. They are not necessarily synonyms. Tohu and bohu should be viewed as complementary, but without being synonymous. Jerome, in preparing the Vulgate translation, wasn't really all that clear on the correct meaning of the Hebrew word tohu. That is why he translated tohu as a synonym of bohu. But it is also a fact that today, in order to establish the meaning of some difficult Hebrew words with uncertain meanings and uncertain pronunciations— Modern scholars of Hebrew actually looked to the Vulgate and to the Catholic Church Fathers of that time for some guidance. This is to help them bridge the gap when Hebrew was a dead language. What the Latin Vulgate text of Genesis 1-2 tells us is that the precise meaning of tohu has really been lost, and it had already been lost by Jerome's time, around 400 A.D. Otherwise, Jerome would would have treated tohu as a synonym of bohu, 
Like modern scholars, Jerome also only established a general meaning for tohu by examining all the other Old Testament places where this word is used. And that examination, Jerome didn't even do particularly well. Right. Well, it would have been hard to do that without a concordance, <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, it would take maybe months to, to find the locations of those words, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but, but the main point to keep in mind here is that the rendering was certainly influenced by Jerome's own views regarding the creation and the nature of the universe. Without correctly understanding what had really happened when God created this universe and thereafter, it was virtually impossible for Jerome to present a correct picture in his translation. We should keep this in mind. So for the expression tohu and bohu, he simply presented two synonyms, both meaning empty. He was guessing. In this regard, Wycliffe came closer to the intended meaning of the Hebrew expression. Instead of rendering this as empty and empty, Wycliffe rendered this as useless and empty or as waste and empty. Wycliffe's translation made tohu a value statement, and it made bohu a a content statement, as in void or empty. Wycliffe was on the correct track. Okay. Very interesting. Before we look at various different translations of this verse, let's note some meanings and synonyms. Idle, used by Wycliffe, meant useless, waste, worthless. Void means empty. Without form, synonyms are unformed and formless. Okay, well, without form doesn't mean empty. It just means amorphous, having no particular shape. Okay, okay yeah. <clears throat> so now, would uh, would Yahweh create the universe empty and without a particular shape? Well, the evolutionists oh. would think so, right? That would be kind of a waste of his time, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, maybe that is the correct translation. <laughs> I wasted my time creating these people. There. Uh, all right. Okay. But he does now get into the Septuagint and see if, if the Septuagint is any help. Okay. The Septuagint translation of Genesis 1-2. At this point, we might also briefly consider the Greek translation of Tohu and Bohu in Genesis 1-2. For Tohu and Bohu, the Septuagint here reads, Oratos kai akatekestos. Greek, Oratos means invisible. Kai means and. And akatserestos means without preparation. I know I damaged that word. Yeah, that's I didn't okay. do a good job of reading it. But That's, that's I, one of those thir- 35 I, syllable Greek words. <laughs> <laughs> So the Greek Septuagint literally translate this expression as invisible and without preparation. Hmm. <clears throat> well, no, that this can't meaning, be. He, he couldn't have done it without preparation. No, that doesn't make sense. No. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> the creation, well, uh, the, 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 I think the first day created light, light and uh, separated it from the darkness. So... I think the first day was to create vis- visibility, okay? But you, you can assert, assert that the, there was a time when there was d- only darkness, right after the destruction of the previous eon, right? Mm-hmm. All right, back to you. The meaning, This meaning is deliberately disguised in the official translation of the Septuagint, which reads, But the earth was unsightly and unfurnished. Hmm. Here, unsightly is deliberately vague an obvious appeal to readers to apply the modern meaning of unsightly to this text. 
The point is that scriptures like Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16, and Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, make quite clear that aratos really does mean invisible. And thus the Septuagint translation of Genesis 1-2 is not only poor, it is totally unacceptable. There is no way that the Hebrew text of Genesis 1-2 means, and the earth was invisible. No, not right. <laughs> hmm. so, Agree yeah, 100% with that. Yeah, yeah that's a stretch. That's a stretch. So it looks like the Septuagint is of no help in this case. <laughs> it usually right. is of tremendous help. Back to you. The author of this Septuagint text was obviously clueless as to what tohu really means. However, this rendering of invisible had a major influence on how later translations translators viewed the word tohu. It was this concept of invisible that became the stepping stone to the expression without form. We should be aware of this line of thinking. Okay. Now let's see which translations fall into which group regarding the translation of tohu and bohu. Okay, and also I would say it probably led to the assumption that Yahweh created the universe out of nothing, out of nothingness, okay, where Paul clearly says that um, we, we live in his body, that he created everything out of himself, okay, whatever particulate uh, matter, if, it, if particulate matter did not exist yet, that and Yahweh created it out of his own body, not out of nothingness, okay, back to you. <clears throat> The Greek Septuagint translates this as <clears throat> invisible and unprepared. The Latin Vulgate basically translated this as empty and empty. The Wycliffe translation translated this as idle and void, meaning waste and empty. Translations that have followed this Wycliffe translation and use the expression waste and empty, including the use of synonyms, are the 1522 Martin Luther's German translation, the 1884 Darby translation, the 1885 ERV, the 1901 ASV, and the 1898 Young's Literal translation. Okay, so we, we can see that this is a commonly accepted, and that's why we have this situation today. So why don't you drop down to John Calvin's commentary on Genesis 1 and 2 and see if that's any help. Okay. <clears throat> the following text is a quotation from John Calvin's commentary on Genesis 1-2. And the earth was without form and void. I shall not be very solicitous about the exposition of these two epithets, tohu and bohu. The Hebrews use them when they designate anything empty and confused or vain and nothing worth. Undoubtedly, <clears throat> Moses placed them both in opposition to all those created objects which pertain to the form the ornament and the perfection of the world. Were we now to take away, I say, from the earth all that God added after the time here alluded to, then we should have this rude and unpolished or rather shapeless chaos. For the same reason he calls it the abyss and waters, since in that mass of matter nothing was solid or stable, nothing distinct. Okay. This is the origin of the without form translation for tohu, John Calvin was the man who viewed the creation of the earth as starting out with shapeless chaos in which nothing was solid and nothing was stable. Calvin was also clearly influenced by the Septuagint translation of this verse. Okay, very good. All right, so uh, uh, having no knowledge of astronomy, geology, archaeology, etc., etc., and of course the idea that there would have been a previous 
form of the universe which was destroyed. Um, I don't know which translations use the word had become instead of was, but uh, from all the evidence at hand, had become is the best translation of Genesis 1-2. And so that, that, that uh, presumes that type of language tells us there was a previous form to the universe which was destroyed uh, by some cataclysm. Okay, so uh, I think everybody is getting the point that we need to consider this possibility that uh, we are uh, you know, living in a third or fourth recreation. All right, so uh, let's do one more section here. Hebrew verbs with the QAL stem and the perfect tense, okay? Which, okay. <clears throat> all right. Hebrew verbs have different forms. The most common form used in the Old Testament is called qual, spelled Q-A-L, being used about twice as often as all other verb forms combined. It expresses a simple action in the active voice form. Each verb also has the ability to express a tense. I mentioned earlier that the verb created in verse 1 and the verb was in verse 2 are in the Hebrew text both in the perfect tense. This tense has a range of uses. The first and most common use is that the perfect tense expresses a completed action in the past. It is also used in situations where in English the present tense is used in many cases. However, the primary meaning of the perfect tense remains a completed action in the past. Okay. Thus, the perfect tense means, in a beginning, God created the heavens. And it also means, in a beginning, God had created the heavens. Okay, now he's saying, in a beginning, not the beginning. Did you catch that? Yes, yeah, sure did. Okay. <laughs> Meaning, this could be more, yeah. one of several beginnings. Yes, there you go. Please continue. As in several yeah. earth ages. Right. Because we know, we know yeah. that there are different earth ages, and this is not the first one. That we are currently living in. Okay, please continue. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where did I leave off? Uh, completed, similarly, the perfect yeah. tense means, yeah. and the earth was waste and empty. And it also means, and the earth became or had become waste and empty. As with the absence of any articles in the Latin text, so also with verbs in the perfect tense in the Hebrew text. To a considerable degree, it really depends on the understanding of the translator as to how the perfect tense is best translated into English in any specific context. Okay, so we're getting a really good uh, indication of the problems of translating from the Hebrew into English, given the nature of the verbs and the lack of uh, many tenses in Hebrew, which we in English have developed all kinds of different tenses. Uh, to accommodate you know, past, present, future, conditional future, <laughs> etc., etc. You know, Hebrew didn't have that. It just basically had two tenses, one being something completed in the past and something ongoing is basically what he's saying. Back to you. To get some idea of the scope of this matter, in the Old Testament Hebrew, there are 12,562 instances in 8,659 different verses where a verb is used with the QAL stem and in the perfect tense. In other words, verbs with this stem and this tense are extremely common in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Below is a random 
list of examples where a verb with the QAL stem and the perfect tense has been correctly translated in the King James Version with the help of an auxiliary verb. Common auxiliary verbs are have, be, may, can, must, do, shall, and will. I have included three examples from other books to show that this is not limited to the book of Genesis. Each case presents only the relevant expression in these verses, and I have rendered the translation of the verb in question, all of which are in the QAL stem and in the perfect tense, okay, in capital letters for easier recognition. Yeah, now this is a serious word study. I don't know how he dug up these 12,562 instances, right? <laughs> well, yeah. That's a... Yeah. Time, serious words. Yeah, 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 right. Well, just give a couple of, you know, maybe four or five examples here. Okay. First example will be Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed. So instead of gave, I gave you, I have given. Given, right. Yeah. Okay. Genesis one thirty one, And God saw everything that he had made. Genesis 2, 2. God ended his work which he had made. Genesis 2.3, because that in it he had rested. And Genesis 2.8, there he put the man whom he had formed. That's a very important word, formed, not created, in Genesis chapter 2, which we'll get to very shortly, folks. Right. Adam was only formed. The other, all That's the other right. people were created. Okay. And, uh, Do we want to start on Genesis 2 now? Yeah, let me just scroll down here real quick and see if he has anything. Okay, the Rotherham translation. Just to read a couple of uh, paragraphs from the last section here, the Rotherham translation. Okay. <clears throat> I have held back until now from looking at the 1902 Rotherham translation because this translation illustrates a very interesting point. Let's now look at it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth had become waste and wild, and darkness was on the face of the roaring deep. But the Spirit of God was brooding in the face of the waters. That's okay. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 from the Rotherham translation. Now he uses the terminology, had become, which means it was not waste and wild before some event. Okay, back to you. This translation illustrates that the way to translate the Hebrew verbs in these two verses depends more on the understanding and the perspective with which the translator approaches this text than on some inherent quality of the Hebrew text. Rotherham knew that, grammatically speaking, the translation had become was just as correct as the translation was. It was Rotherham's own understanding that prompted him to choose had become rather than using was. Both translations would technically be correct, but only one of those would convey the intended meaning. In this case, Rotherham's own understanding led him to select the correct option. Okay. But, yeah, keep, uh, but, uh, he goes down to Corinthians 2.11. We'll see if that's relevant, so please continue. But by the same token, the verb in verse 1 could be translated as created or as had created. And for verse 1, Rotherham chose the wrong option, created. <laughs> okay. This illustrates that the scholars that scholars may well be linguistically qualified to make a correct translation. But when there are several theoretically correct choices, then their skills in Hebrew and in Greek are not enough. 
That is when 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 comes into play. It takes an understanding imparted by God's Spirit to select the correct choice from amongst a group of potentially right answers. So note, as long as there is only one possible way to correctly translate a verse, there is always a good chance that qualified translators can come up with the correct translation, even if they don't have God's Spirit guiding them. It is when, from a grammatical point of view, there are two or more theoretically correct options for translating a verse that translators who don't have God's Spirit are likely to make a wrong choice. With two or more potentially correct translation options, they are playing roulette. They may get it right, but the odds are usually stacked in favor of getting it wrong. Rotherham illustrates this point very well. While he got it right in verse 2, he got it wrong in verse 1. Amongst all other translators, almost all of the translators got the verb wrong for both verses. Yet the other translators probably had the same level of competency in Hebrew that Rotherham had. We might consider another example of this same point, and that is John Wycliffe's translation of Genesis 1.1. Faced with the options of in a beginning and in the beginning from the Latin text, Wycliffe chose in the beginning. He had a 50-50 chance of getting it right, but he still got it wrong. <laughs> That's the kind of luck I have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On top of that, his desire to make the text clearer, Wycliffe added the words of not or out of nothing to this verse. Yeah, out of, that's, that's an insertion, yeah, out of nothing. He yeah. also got it wrong in this regard. God did not create the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Okay, all right, take it, uh, th these next two paragraphs, I think that will okay. you know, settle the point. Okay, in Hebrews 11.3, Paul explained that through faith we understand that the things which are seen, in other words, the material universe, were not made of things which do appear. Paul did not mean that physical matter was made out of nothing. What Paul meant is that God created physical matter out of invisible building blocks. Very good. Through faith, we that's understand that, that God used the Holy Spirit <laughs> right. to create matter. Yes. In plain language... Faith helps us to understand that all physical matter is a simple manifestation of, for lack of a better term, spirit essence. Matter can be converted into energy, and energy is power. And that is precisely what the Holy Spirit is, power. So a comment that John Wycliffe intended as helpful, in fact, detracted from the truth revealed in Genesis 1.1. A third example that illustrates this point concerns the comments in the Old Testament making regards to the Hebrew word bohu. The Old Testament can readily see that bohu refers to having been made empty by God's judgment in the only places where this word is used outside of Genesis 1-2. Yet they are unable to reach a sound judgment regarding the use of bohu in Genesis 1-2. For Genesis 1-2, they claim this word refers to the primordial condition of the earth, a claim that is utterly absurd one that mocks God's creative powers and abilities. The correct meaning seems so obvious, and yet they are incapable of understanding the truth. Okay, so I thought he was going to quote 1 Corinthians 2.11. So uh, let me just go to uh, what it says here. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man... Uh, that's, that's not helpful. 
It seems to say it's the Spirit of God that uh, created things. Or have I got the wrong verse here? Let me go back to... Uh... Are you looking up 1 Corinthians? Yeah, it's 1 Corinthians 2.11. Okay. Okay, For what? so... Yeah. I've got it right here. Okay. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knows, knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Okay. So, in other words, we have to do some real deep research to understand the scriptures, right? <laughs> which is kind of like what, uh, what Paul is saying there. I thought that if that verse is going to be um, more illustrative of the meanings of tohu and bohu, okay? But, uh, so, uh, what we can see is, from evidence within the scriptures, the, had, the translation had become is probably the correct one, given the, all of the examples that Mr. Nelty uh, you know, advises us, and that the theological word book of the Old Testament, they... they give the right meanings for the verses after Genesis, but for, they don't want to give the correct meaning or the same meaning to the Genesis 1-2, which is kind of odd, right? So why not give the same meaning as the other two verses, which mm -hmm. means it had become, all right? So I think, uh, I think we've done our best to uh, uh, inform the skeptics that... Uh, was is probably a bad translation, and that uh, we're in a recreation of a previously destroyed universe, or at least solar system, okay? Because there's a lot of evidence that our solar system has undergone tremendous damage in the past, namely the asteroid belt, which now scientists conclude is a uh, an exploded planet, and we're finding that Mars once does still has water on it, but it used to have rivers, probably had extensive life, and there's all kinds of evidence that they're, uh, what do you call it, man-made objects on the planet Mars. Okay, what happened? And uh, Dr. Wesley Swift, in my opinion, has it correct. He says there was war in the heavens, on the planets, in the spirit world, in our solar system, and possibly damage done to other parts of the universe by the fall of Lucifer. Okay, And that's basically what it tells us in uh, Revelation about the war in heaven. That's right. That's right. We just got to connect the dots. And, of yeah. course, the original translators of the Bible you know, had not, none of these ideas in mind when they were translating. So that's, uh, so Nelty is being very kind, but he has to be kind because they would not have any conception of what was really happening, you know, in Genesis 1-1, all right? But that would now take us to, this is where we, we pick it up in Genesis 2, verse 1, after I think we have uh, probably the best understanding we can get of Genesis chapter 1, okay, the, the first few shows that we've done on this. So we're, we're living in a, a repeat, a recreation, not the original creation, and that because the Luciferian rebellion caused uh, multiple catastrophes of a huge extent, they probably had nuclear weapons, Okay, there's even evidence of nuclear weapons before the modern era, because we have places, for example, in India, 
where the uh, and uh, the Mahabharata talks about fantastic weapons of mass destruction, right? And, and primarily in the area of India, and uh, you know, the etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So how did uh, we have this large area of of uh, radioactivity in India recorded well before uh, an atomic bomb was ever you know created? Okay, so. I think with that uh, introduction, we're ready to pick up on Genesis chapter 2, if you please. okay. So to sum it up, Eli, for for those who may have missed the first couple of shows, Genesis verse 1 and Genesis 2, just the time that elapsed between Genesis verse 1 and Genesis verse 2 could have been literally millions of years. Could have been certainly, yeah, eons, certainly, because that's the meaning of the word yom which is very clear, translated as day. And we went extensively into the controversy as whether Yom should be translated as 24-hour day versus Eon. Okay, So you, know, you can translate it as 24-hour day, but then it conflicts with natural history. So yeah. that's, that's a poor choice. And we went through all kinds of reasons why that is the wrong choice. Okay, the, Both the metaphorical mm-hmm. and literal definitions we have to choose from for all these words in Genesis 1 and 2. So I think that at the very least, uh, our analysis here is uh, more detailed and it gives the, the reader options of how to translate this, whereas the King James translator said, this is it, you believe us, uh, no, no questions asked. Thank you very much. Please continue to Genesis chapter 2. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Here we are, Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Okay. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, not a literal day as we've explained. All right, hold on, hold on. There's a very important word in here, host. Host. What do you think of when you hear the word host? uh, Host. Leader. That's what first comes to my mind. The hostess with the mostess? <laughs> <laughs> Host, Tzaba'ah, uh, a mass of persons, or figuratively things, especially regularly organized for war, an army, by implication, a campaign, literally or figuratively, appointed time, battle, army, company, hosts, service, soldiers, Waiting upon war. Whoa! Who'd have thunk it? Really? He's talking about all the angelic beings that are in the heavens. And Getting likewise. ready for war. Yeah. <laughs> so the war that, that preceded this recreation is not done. Okay? They're still ready to go to battle, as we should be, because that, this last battle is coming right up, folks. All right, so there's a lot more involved in this word host. It's, it essentially is telling us that they are living beings, in, uh, and we cover the word che, and its general meaning of living creature, uh, air-breathing creature. So there's, and we talked about whether the word Elohim is a reference to God the Father and God the Son, whether it's a reference to all the angelic beings in the spirit world, etc., etc. So you just can't say, well, this is what it means, and then you must believe us that this is what it means. So given this verse here, 
my opinion, and we'll talk about this more next week, that uh, the angelic host are the Elohim because they're being used by Yahweh as the blueprint, as the blueprint for the various living beings on the earth, including the Adamic race. And one of the interesting things uh, that I've discovered in the the extent to which I have uh, studied uh, physical abductions of people into spacecraft, virtually all of them say that the that the operators appear to be white. You, you, you have two uh, creatures. You have the greys, which appear to be more like robots or you know androids. Okay, half 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 biological, half machine, and then um, but most of them say that the operators of the spacecraft are Aryan-looking, very often with blonde hair and blue eyes. Okay, so uh, it stands to reason. Dan, that whenever a physical object is created, finally given shape, it has to have a blueprint, which is either a mental or spiritual blueprint, and that's what I think we're talking about here in Genesis mm-hmm. 1 and 2, that the, that the Adamic race, the blueprint of the Adamic race, is these blonde-haired, blue-eyed Elohim, that's what the word is, the word is Elohim, that uh, are the blueprint for the white race. And then every other creature that was created or formed is uh, has its own spiritual blueprint. Okay, what the Greek term is archon, archetype, where we get our, our term mm-hmm. archetype. Okay, so I think that's what's going on here. We'll elaborate more on this next week. Please, back to you, verse 2. Okay, <clears throat> and on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. Okay, so clearly we have a line of demarcation between the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, because Yahweh, again, it still says Elohim, the, the, Yahweh has not yet been introduced into the narrative, okay? Which indicates to me that the Elohim are doing work under Yahweh's direction, just like the contractor who has has the job of building a high-rise, his workers are the ones actually doing the work. He does not lift a finger necessarily unless something's going wrong, right? Okay? If you've ever been on a construction site, the contractor has has to organize everything and make sure every company every the plumbers the carpenters the electricians all of them are doing their work properly somebody has to coordinate the quote-unquote creation and that's what happened in genesis chapter one okay so thinking like a contractor so these elohim are the teams of soldiers literal living beings in the spirit world that were performed this work under yahweh's direction Okay, but very importantly, it says he ended. This is finished. The work of creation is finished, and the absolute proof of this is the word bara for create is not used in Genesis chapter 2, Dan. It's not used there. So that the idea that Genesis chapter 2 is simply a continuation of the creation cannot possibly be correct. Back to you. Verse 3. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. Yes, and it eventually became a commandment that, that we should rest every seventh day. 
Okay. So, now, okay, now let's get to, and so it's, there's a very clear line of demarcation between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in that the creation was done in Genesis 1, and then Yahweh said, okay, this is a time, uh, now we, we're done with creation, let's rest, and uh, let's, let's, have, let's allow another Yaum, the seventh day, for all of the creation to ferment, let's uh, allow the ground to develop its uh, critters for breaking down the soil so that the plants and animals can have food, etc., 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 okay? So all of this needs to develop and time to develop into full bloom, okay? And uh, it had to be, that, that this yalm of rest had to occur before the garden was set up by Yahweh, in this chapter. Okay, back to you. Verse 4. <clears throat> These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. Okay, there was, there, not, there was not an Adamite <laughs> to till the ground. Okay, here we're talking now, the, the emphasis now shifts completely from creation of species to, to particular uh, individuals selected from the white race created in Genesis 1. Okay, that's what's going on here, folks. It's not a continuation of the creation account. All right? This is uh, how we have to understand this. Okay? So, so, and let me just uh, recreate here. Uh, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew for Yahweh Elohim. Now, here's where Yahweh is finally introduced. Had not caused it to rain upon the earth. So, we're saying, so this day of rest was uh, a situation where everything was allowed to ferment, to germinate, to uh, you know, develop into those species which have their seed within themselves and recreate, reproduce. That's what's going on here. Please continue. <clears throat> and of course, uh, uh, sorry, I forgot. Man, H120, that is ruddy, meaning there was not an atomite. So wherever you see man... And it's H20, if it's not a specific reference to the man Adam, then it should have been translated Adamite, because everybody else assumes this means all races of bipeds. No, it's not. It's Adamite exclusively. Back to you. That's why word studies are so important. That's right. That's right. Very important. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Verse 6. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And, the Lord, and Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And we're okay. talking about yeah. now, Adamites of course, here. Right. And yeah, only and Adam Adamites had this uh, breath breathed into them right. by God. By Yahweh. Okay. So Yahweh was not uh, you know, uh, introduced as... So here, okay, so the high rise is completed. Okay, now on the top floor, the contractor meets with the customer, <laughs> right, and says, okay, 
I'm turning this building over to you. It's your responsibility now. Okay? And uh, he breathes into the, the customer, Adam, a, a spirit that he did not have before. Because now he has to learn how to operate this whole building. Let's say it's a 100-story building, the, uh, the, the Sears Tower. Uh, you know, you've got to know what you're doing. And so now this process of learning how to run the kingdom here on earth is being transmitted to Adam. And he did a good job for a while, but then he lost it. All right. So uh, it could be. Now, it, it's interesting that in Genesis 2.5, they say, Amen. Now, whether or not the uh, indefinite article is there or not is a good question. There was not an Adamite to till the ground. And so, and then in subsequent verses, they they switch to now uh, in Genesis two seven and Yahweh Elohim had formed a man of the dust of the ground and breathe or could be man you know Adam kind it could be either a man or Adam kind you really have to be careful how to how to translate this okay but let's assume it is a man so why did they delete the uh, indefinite article here. So we'll get into this more next week, but please continue. We'll go as far as we can. And Yahweh God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So we see here that he actually took that man, yep. who we'll see as Adam, and placed him in the garden. He wasn't yeah. there. He didn't form him in the garden. He was put there. Yeah. Now let's take note of the, the uh, words before. A garden, and the man, the Adamite, okay, whom he had formed, Yatsar. I mean, there's so many, there's a difference in setting. There's a difference in time after the day of rest. There, we're talking about an individual Adamite, not the species. The context of Genesis chapter 2 is completely different from the context of Genesis chapter 1. I don't know how anybody can fail to see this. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's we're a, talking about one man here. Yeah, one man, one Adamite. Yeah. Okay. And of course, First. we've already discussed the fact that the word man is translated from many different Hebrew words, but only one of which means to show blood in the face or Adam kind. All right. Please continue. We have a couple minutes left. Verse nine. And out of the and out of the ground made Yahweh God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of life is pretty much commonly now acknowledged within identity as meaning the, uh, the white race. Okay, and uh, that Yahweh, uh, Yahshua is, in fact, that tree of life. Because uh, he is the root and we are the branches. Okay, so uh, as we get it, and that's this pretty much how the book of Revelation treats the concept of the tree of life, that uh, you, you can either become part of the tree of life or you can reject it, okay? But you have to be part of that, it biologically have to be part of this tree of life in order to pass or fail, okay? And we have the ability to pass or fail. Okay, so we're, we're just about out of time. And the next, uh, so these are the general words that are being used. And then we talk about the, the, um, the particular atmospheric reality that existed right after, as this garden was being 
uh, created or made by Yahweh and put Adam kind into it, okay? But we'll go over these words again in greater detail next week. So, uh, Dan, good job. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Praise Thank Yahweh, Pass Ammunition. And we're going to get to, you know, these first four chapters of Genesis are extremely important because they shape our understanding of the rest of the Bible. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. See you next time. Good night. Good night.